and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. I'm Shabnam. Today is all about biopharma, and more specifically, the use of cell therapy for B-cell-mediated autoimmune diseases. We're talking with one of the pioneers in this space, Dr. Amy Payne, who is one of the co-founders of Cavaletta Bio. Cavaletta Bio is a clinical stage biotechnology company focused on the discovery and development of engineered T-cell therapies for patients with B-cell-mediated autoimmune diseases. Their lead product candidate, DSG3, CAR-T, is entering clinical development as a potential treatment for patients with mucosal pemphigus vulgaris, a prototypical B-cell-mediated autoimmune disease. Dr. Payne is a worldwide leader in characterizing B-cell-mediated autoantibody repertoires in pemphigus vulgaris and other autoimmune diseases. She wears many hats beyond that at Cavaletta, including a professor of dermatology, director of the Penn Clinical Autoimmunity Center of Excellence, and the lead physician in the Autoimmune Blistering Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, Dr. Payne, for joining us today. I think we'll have a very interesting conversation about autoimmune disease and biopharma And more importantly, how you've been able to translate your scientific work into a company, all while maintaining professorship. That's a huge deal to us, and we're excited to learn more. It would be helpful, first off, to place some context around your achievements with Cavaletta thus far. Do you think you could provide some background specifically on your decision to pursue an academic career? Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for the invitation to join this podcast with you. So, yeah, when I pursued MD, PhD training right after college, my aspiration was to become a university professor because I had such a formative experience working in the laboratory of my undergraduate mentor at Stanford, Gilbert Chu, who cared for cancer patients in clinic, researched hereditary cancer syndromes in the lab, and taught medical and graduate students. So I love the academic environment and the challenge of finding a research field that you'd be passionate enough about to spend the rest of your life studying. So for my MD-PhD, I studied mechanisms of copper transport with Jonathan Gitlin at Washington University in St. Louis. And then I moved on to my dermatology residency at the University of Pennsylvania, where I ultimately investigated B-cell repertoire profiling in the laboratories of John Stanley and Don Siegel. So my clinical practice now focuses on the diagnosis and care of patients with autoimmune skin blistering diseases. And my research lab studies how autoimmunity occurs in patients in order to develop better targeted therapies for disease. Was entrepreneurship ever on your mind? It seems that your path was much guided by mentorship and and the science after all. Yeah, I mean, really the short answer to that is no. (laughs) Not until recently. (laughs) Could you share with us your journey from being a researching clinician and professor who had no plans in entrepreneurship um, to becoming a co-founder of Cabaletta? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I set up my clinical practice, I started to see patients with autoimmune skin diseases. And right now, you know, the current standard of care for many autoimmune diseases is to just globally suppress the immune system. 
because we have no way of identifying just the autoimmune cells. So we sort of wipe out all of the immune cells to be able to eliminate the disease. And that's really where cancer therapy was similarly back in the, like the 1950s. You know, there was no way of targeting cancer cells. So you just wiped out all dividing cells and it worked in part, but it obviously caused tremendous toxicity and it was only modestly effective. So really the goal was to bring a precision medicine approach to autoimmunity, just like they've brought that to cancer and to be able to determine if we can understand the molecular drivers of autoimmunity so that we can develop better targeted therapies for disease. So that was sort of the founding principle when I started my laboratory back in 2006, that we would take patients with this um, specific autoimmune blistering skin disease called pemphigus. We would characterize their B-cell immune profiles because we knew that the B-cells were responsible for causing disease. And then the goal was, was can we find any you know, signature or smoking gun to be able to target it? Are there specific genes that those B-cells use to make their disease-causing antibodies? Are there specific amino acid sequences or, or you know, little signatures that are in their weapons that we can use to target? So that was sort of what we set out, out to look for. And really, I've devoted over a decade of my life to really studying that question. And, you know, we used to always say that anything that works for B-cell leukemia and lymphoma should ultimately work for pemphigus, because right now, you know, the, the weapon that we use to fight pemphigus, you know, which is FDA approved is rituximab. And that's a B-cell targeting agent that's FDA approved to treat B-cell leukemia and lymphoma. So obviously, if you can wipe out your B-cells, you know, you should be able to treat the disease, but the consequence of doing that is potentially serious and, and even fatal infections. So basically, the key link was made when, you know, this brilliant research fellow in my laboratory, Christoph Ellebrecht, attended a talk that was given by Mike Malone. He's a Penn professor and one of the co-founders of Cavaletta Bio uh, with me, who described remarkable cures of B-cell leukemia that were observed in patients at Penn who were treated with um, these so-called anti-CD19 chimeric antigen receptor or CAR T-cells, which back then was informally known as CART19. And so Mike had co-invented CART19 um, when he was working in the laboratory of Carl June back when he was a postdoctoral fellow. And this therapy has since become tisagen leclusol, which is now FDA approved for the treatment of B-cell leukemia and lymphoma. So Christoph you know, thought about that design and hypothesized that if we flip the design of CART19 so that instead of using an antibody um, to target the CD19 antigen on B-cells, we use the desmoglion 3 antigen to target the anti-desmoglion 3 antibody on the surface of pemphigus B-cells that these, what we now call AA CAR T cells, should eliminate only these antigen-specific pemphigus B cells rather than all B cells, and that would create a precision cellular immunotherapy. So Christoph connected with VJ, who was a fellow in Mike's lab, and together they initiated those experiments that ultimately led to desmoglion 3 CART. Right, right. Wow, that's awesome. So it all kind of started with a fellow at your lab going to a talk and having this aha moment, really where they could apply the same technology that's used to treat, you know, lymphoma and kind of turn that into autoimmune therapy. 
Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think this is the great thing about an academic environment. You know, the the idea is that Penn's very interdisciplinary, collaborative. This collaboration with Mike and Vijay was absolutely critical to be able to share their knowledge of cell therapy with our knowledge of autoimmunity and basically bring those two fields together. Yeah, that's awesome. So you had this idea and you started to, you know, build out this technology through various rounds of research, I assume. And when did you make the decision to bring this technology to more of an entrepreneurial path where you decide, okay, this needs to be translated into a commercial therapy that needs to be you know, given to patients outside of the laboratory setting? Yeah. So after the publication of our initial proof of concept paper back in 2016, you know, the phone started ringing off the hook, if you will, I guess the proverbial phone with queries from, you know, various biotech companies and investor groups who were um, interested in learning about the technology. So our Penn Center for Innovation was fielding those calls and passing them along to us. And, you know, what really became clear after a few of these conversations was that when the field as a whole in that ecosystem back in 2016, the lead groups that were developing CAR T cells for cancer indications had sort of a blinders on focus on getting their lead products to market. So the first two CAR T cell therapies for cancer were FDA approved in the second half of 2017. So they were deep in the, you know, the clinical trials um, to get those, those products approved. And we knew that it would take a very very dedicated and focused team of individuals with expertise in both cell therapy and autoimmunity to direct Desmoglium 3 CART through preclinical and clinical development, as well as a really committed group of investors who appreciated both the challenges and the opportunities for CAR T cells and autoimmune disease as opposed to cancer indications. So it wasn't just going to be a simple, you know, tack on, you know, it really was something that required and deserved a lot of focus. And so that was really in part what drove our decision to start up our own biotech company. I see. And how did you approach the decision of you're going to start your own company, whereas like you could have partnered with a bigger established pharma or biotech company and licensed out your technology? Did you have that debate? And how did you go about thinking that through? Yeah, you know, in 2016, there weren't really that many companies, I think, that had maybe the mental and the financial bandwidth to be able to take on a brand new project like that, and give it the attention it deserves. You know, so I think that a lot of the lead companies had invested in an anti-CD19 CAR T-cell product. Many of those same companies had then put a lot more money into solid tumor CAR programs. And now the ability to then take on an entire portfolio of possible immune-mediated diseases, you know, it's, it's, it's actually really a completely different pipeline, if you will, you know, for considering autoimmune diseases versus cancers and oncology. So I think that dedication and that focus to autoimmunity, we didn't necessarily want to just be a tack on, you know, and, or an afterthought. Yeah, yeah it really deserved its, its own focus. And so that's when we realized that this is really going to work. We, we really need people who are thinking about this 100% of the time. Right, right. Now you really need that, you know, full 100% or more than 100% dedicated team instead of being more of a pipeline product out of a whole portfolio. That definitely makes sense. And so kind of going back to when you raised the Series A, what was your thought process as you were ramping up and you were trying to raise that first round of funding? Yeah, I mean, that was a really whirlwind time. I mean, to go back to really the start of when we were thinking about all of that, a few key events probably fell into place. So 
in the fall of 2016, right when we were you know, starting to get all of those cold calls from investors and biotech companies, Bruce Levine, who was one of the key people who were, was involved in the development of CART-19, along with Carl June and Mike Malone, introduced Mike and myself to Stephen Nickberger, who's a professor of Wharton. He teaches a life science management course to the senior students on you know, sort of this exact topic that you're talking about, which is after you've published the initial scientific proof of concept, how do you bring novel technologies to clinical trials and then ultimately to market? And so um, the final capstone presentation is intended to mirror what an actual A round pitch is supposed to look like to investors. So, you know, that course really turned out to be one of the best educational experiences of my career. And he had originally told me that your, you know, your minimum requirement was that you would just have to give the introductory lecture and meet with the students maybe two to three times a year. That's all I would have to do. But as soon as I went to that first course and saw the curriculum and and how informative it would be into exactly what I was aspiring to do. I really cleared out my Fridays and sat in on every course I could because it was phenomenal. I mean, my my faculty colleagues at Penn Med have basically been asking me, how can I take that course? It's really phenomenal. So, and throughout the course of that, that arc of that year, you know, we learned how to create a preclinical development strategy based on the science, how to clinically develop products in each regulatory phase then how to overlay milestone-based financing plan to support those preclinical and clinical activities, keeping in mind what FDA, patients, physicians, and investors at each stage are looking for. And one of the things I really appreciate in that class is that they really stress the importance of leadership and teamwork behaviors that are essential for any successful company. So after that course ended, that's when Steve and Mike and I started working together in more depth on developing the business plan for Caballetta. Um, that would ultimately become you know, our, our initial pitch. And we ultimately co-founded the company together. So that was sort of the start of how we decided to, to launch it as its own startup. But then going back to your question about when it really got into the nitty gritty of raising that initial Series A, I, I was just remembering back to that time because I remember talking to my husband you know, as this all started, are you, are we ready for this? Because I am about to take on a 150% time job on top of my 150% time job. And so, but I just how can you say no? It's a once in a lifetime opportunity as a physician scientist. It's sort of our dream, if you will, to advance the science we have been working on in the laboratory forward to clinical trials. To a certain extent, it also became clear that, you know, when you're talking to investors that, you know, to a certain extent, it's also a responsibility because probably no one has thought about the challenges and the opportunities as much as we had. So definitely you'd want to be involved. And, you know, Stephen is so experienced in this area. He's such a good teacher and communicator that the actual process and strategy for what we wanted to do seemed quite straightforward at the time. I guess this was like naive, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? Because I was like, simple, we just need to find this ideal match of investors, you know, who are as committed to and passionate about our science as we are, who can offer constructive criticism to help refine our strategy, easy, done. So, (laughs) you know, so I think our our pitch, if you will, was that our long-term mission is to develop and launch the first curative targeted cellular therapies for autoimmune disease. And it's a field that is still underrepresented in the biotech ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So maybe, let's say, in a world where you didn't have an LSM class to go to, do you think there would have been resources that you could turn to that could have helped you to turn your discovery into a company like Kabbalata? 
you know, I know from speaking with some of my colleagues that they're rarer in the academic space. So I think that, you know, historically, you just talk to people who have done it before you. But for a lot of people, there's not necessarily a precedent or connection to that. Fortunately, those sorts of resources are starting to spring up. Um, And so, for example, in dermatology, we have a resource called Advancing Innovation in Dermatology that was founded by a group of dermatologists who were entrepreneurial and, and wanted to help promote that in the dermatology ecosystem. So it's a nonprofit accelerator incubator with a series of both financial and also kind of advice and structural resources. I think Thea is actually an important link there as well. It's basically about kind of creating that network of people that can basically help advise people at a critical point in time. That's awesome. I didn't know that there were like specialty focused groups that really would kind of band together and provide resources and advice. I think that's awesome that those resources exist. And back to your comment about Capstone, I personally benefited so much from that course. And it was certainly like one of my favorite courses at Penn, because I think it just helped me reaffirm my interest and passion for hopefully one day being in your position and translating my research into a company. I think that's also a dream of mine. So I want to kind of shift gears and kind of fast forward to like where Caballetta is today in terms of its first product being in clinical development. And I want to first start off with talking about Pemphigus vulgaris or PV. We've talked about it a little bit in the context of the car itself, but I think it'd be helpful first to just talk about what it is and then talk about, you know, why it was an ideal first indication. Yeah, so our lead indication and the disease that I do focus on in clinic is mucosal pemphigus vulgaris. It's a blistering disease that's caused by autoantibodies that target a protein called desmoglium-3, which is a little bit of a mouthful. But binding of antibodies to desmoglium-3 disrupts adhesion in your skin, so basically what makes your skin and mucosal cells stick together. And so that can lead to painful and potentially life-threatening blisters that can affect the mucous membranes of the mouth, nose, throat, eyes, genitalia. So it's a really debilitating um, disease. It's the ideal indication for antigen-specific CAR T-cell approach because it's considered a paradigm for antibody-mediated disease in humans. So like in immunology textbooks or medical school textbooks, you might see that. And it means that there's a sufficient amount of scientific evidence to suggest that if you get rid of the anti-desmoglium-3 B cells and the antibodies they produce, that you get rid of the disease. So it's truly causative in that circumstance. Got it. And what is the standard of care today for PV? Yeah, so current treatments involve broad immune suppression to reduce the level of circulating antibodies, because until now, we haven't had a way to target just the disease-causing antibodies. The problem with that approach is that since your immune system is important for fighting off infection, almost all of these approaches are associated with side effects, including risk of life-threatening infections. So that's the rationale for pursuing an antigen-specific therapeutic approach. If you think about the parallel in cancer you know, they, they wanted to stop just targeting all rapidly dividing cells and try to identify specific marker and driver pathways that would be very specific to individual cancer. So we really wanted to try to bring that precision medicine approach to autoimmunity as well. So if we were to pursue a targeted cellular immunotherapy approach in pemphigus, instead of wiping out all your B cells, including all the good ones that protect you from infection, we're aiming to just eliminate the autoimmune anti-desmoglium 3B cells that cause mucosal PV. Right. Got it. So right now the company is focused on 
gaining more of that clinical proof of concept for the first products. But then at the same time, you don't, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You want to make sure that you're also considering other indications as well and just general pipeline expansion. So how do you kind of balance those two competing forces? Yeah. So as you mentioned, like right now, Cabaletta's clinical focus is really on the phase one Desmoglan 3 CART trial um, that just recently opened for enrollment. And the significance of that is, is that, you know, this will really help us understand the safety, preliminary efficacy of the product, which to our knowledge is actually the first gene engineered precision cellular immunotherapy to enter clinical trials for an autoimmune disease indication. Because it's truly a first in human that way, we thought that it w- we purposely aim not to expand our clinical development too quickly to allow our learnings for the Desmoglan 3 CART clinical trial to inform the development of subsequent programs. But in my, as well as Mike Malone's laboratory, we're working on the preclinical development of multiple pipeline candidates. And one of these programs focused on muscle-specific tyrosine kinase or musk CAR T cells for myasthenia gravis has recently advanced to IND-enabling studies. Mm-hmm. With cell therapy, it's it's a different ball game compared to small molecule drugs and and such. So, and it's you know it's a relatively nascent therapeutic modality compared to the others. So I'm sure there's been constant communication with the FDA and and lots of back and forth. And as they're also refining their guidelines. So based on your experience thus far, what are some key considerations at each stage of the regulatory process, especially like when you're preparing IND, et cetera, for a cell therapy? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, although there are only three FDA approved CAR T cell therapies on the market right now, there are actually hundreds, like over 500 clinical trials of CAR T cells that are listed on clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, the vast majority of which, of course, are in cancer indications. But, you know, because of this collective experience the community now has with the FDA, uh, many groups at Penn, and I would presume elsewhere as well, no longer seek pre-IND discussions um, with the FDA because they feel there's a decent amount of regulatory precedent with the FDA on IND clearance in the space. And as you mentioned, the FDA did actually recently publish updated guidances on, on cell and gene therapy development. However, because Desmoglion 3 CART was the first of its kind applying to an autoimmune disease indication using a chimeric autoantibody receptor approach rather than the chimeric antigen receptor approach. We did request a pre-IND meeting with the FDA uh, to determine if they agreed with our preclinical, clinical, and manufacturing strategies before we submitted the IND. And these conversations were actually very helpful to guide us. And ultimately, the FDA ended up clearing the Desmoglion 3 CART IND within the standard 30-day window from the data submission. And so we, you know, we ended up publishing that preclinical data package that we submitted to the FDA in the Journal of Clinical Investigation just this month because we wanted to share with the scientific community the results of those experimental studies. You know, it's sort of the first one of its kind. And in that regard, it may be helpful to other groups who want to do similar things. I mean, I think that separate from all of that, you know, the FDA has also created several programs that facilitate various scientific and logistical aspects of the process. So two that became relevant to Desmoglion 3 CART were orphan drug designation. That offers the potential for certain tax credits and marketing exclusivity in recognition of the fact that mucosal PV is a rare disease. 
And another is fast-track designation. So that requires that the therapy meets the strict criteria of intending to treat a serious or life-threatening condition, and furthermore, that it addresses a serious unmet medical need within that condition. And so fast-track offers more frequent meetings and correspondence with FDA throughout the clinical development process and also makes it eligible for accelerated approval or priority review if specific criteria are met along the way. You know, it's nice that FDA has these series of programs that basically allow discussion and back and forth on how to develop these novel therapies. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to have these conversations. It's it's in everyone's best interest that there is this constant communication because the FDA is learning from you and other self-therapy players on how they should assess every other therapy that is filed. Yes, it's a rapidly moving field. So, you know, it can, it can change quickly. Shifting gears a little bit, we had discussed it prior, this communication or relationship between academia and entrepreneurship. It would be helpful to hear about how your position at Cavaletta has evolved over time and sort of take us through a day in the life. What really happens with you juggling being a dermatologist, but also being a co-founder of a major company? Yeah. So, you know, my full-time position is still as a professor of dermatology at Penn. So in that capacity, you know, I see blistering disease patients 15% of my time, spend about 80% of my time with my laboratory, and then 5% of the time teaching and advising medical um, and graduate trainees. So my laboratory used to focus solely on mechanisms of disease and B-cell repertoire cloning in pemphigus, but now we're mainly focused on this new challenge of advancing CART science and technology to be able to address a broader scope of B-cell-mediated autoimmune conditions. So that's, you know, so really my pen life still focuses very much on my research and my clinical and my teaching. Um, At Caballetta, my official title is co-founder and co-chair of the Scientific Advisory Board. Before we founded the company, when it was mainly, you know, just Stephen, Mike, and me, you know, Stephen took the lead on company formation, Mike took the lead on guiding cell therapy and manufacturing strategy, and then I took the lead on preclinical and clinical clinical development strategies that were specific to pemphigus and autoimmunity. And, you know, Stephen used to say we're like three legs of a, of a three-legged stool. You know, we, we complement each other really well and we fall down if one of us is missing. And so now that our strategic and operational plans are well-defined and, you know, Cabalet has grown and hired on more people, my activities now are more related to the interactions I have with the leadership and working subgroups at Cabaletta to just discuss the current and future preclinical and clinical development programs. You know, from a practical standpoint, Penn conflict of interest policy prevents me from having any kind of fiduciary or voting capacity at Cabaletta Bio. So I, I would not be able to be like, you know, chief medical officer or, you know, on the board of directors. And that's basically how they manage in part conflict of interest. Because, you know, if I'm, for example, in a major voting capacity at Cabaletta, and then I'm voting to give myself sponsored research at Penn, you know, then that creates an untenable mm-hmm. conflict of interest. That's like really important in communicating to listeners regarding like their own incentives for potentially starting a company, because if they want to take on a CEO or a CMO role, they might have to part from the university. And But I guess in your case, you have the best of both worlds, uh, seeing patients and being on the leadership of Cabaletta. But I think that's very important to actually share with our listeners that these institutional policies affect your role in the company. Originally, some people were asking me, like, you know, is that incredibly upsetting that you, you know, develop this technology and you cannot even be principal investigator on the trial? 
But when you start to consider, you know, all of the things that are involved, um, you know, ultimately the relationship between academic research and commercialization is absolutely synergistic and essential. So, for example, Penn oversaw the early stage development of what ultimately became Tisagen Leclusol, but there's no way that Penn, as an academic institution, would remain the commercial manufacturer and distributor of that drug, you know, after FDA approval. So it it has to transfer to industry. So before I started Cabaletta, I definitely perceived, you know, that there was a certain distrust of industry conflicts of interest from some of the academics that I encountered. But when you start to think about the resources that are actually necessary to advance Desmoglein 3 cart from that proof of concept in the laboratory to clinic, there's a reason they call it the valley of death, right? So you, you have to think about things like GMP manufacturing, you know, the huge clinical operations teams that are necessary to execute the clinical trial safely and responsibly, regulatory submissions, safety monitoring, all of these sorts of things, you know, it rapidly becomes apparent that, you know, I can't feasibly or responsibly support that effort, you know, through just traditional academic funding sources. So really, I feel fortunate that Penn is able to sort of manage this uh, for me and and Penn ended up being one of Cavaletta's founding investors, you know, and their philosophy is that they have a strong commitment to, as well as experience in at this point, advancing um, technologies that are developed in the laboratories of Penn faculty through proof of concept and clinic. I mean, that's an important arc of the physician scientist and academic endeavor. So Penn provided access to those key GMP resources and and the intellectual resources and structural resources of Penn. And they implemented a conflict of interest management plan for those who were involved. So for example, I can help design the trial, but I can't be the PI of the trial. You know, I can't be involved in the informed consent process. And also key preclinical safety studies that are performed in my laboratory have to undergo external quality assurance review. It's definitely something that I have not been used to as a you know purely academic researcher until this point, but all of these things you know make a lot of sense to help protect patient safety. You know, so I think that the the general conclusion from all of this is that you know conflicts of interest will definitely arise in the process of starting a company. But ideally the university should be able to constructively manage those faculty conflicts of interest to allow them to advance, you know, to clinic. Totally agree. And that's very reassuring. You didn't phrase it as a barrier to innovation, given that there's so many resources at your disposal. So I think it's a matter of sort of sitting down with the right people and laying out the, you know, the conflict of interest folks who, who manage it and being forthright with the situation for planning. But in hindsight, sort of rewinding to the, the beginning of the journey, what would you advise researchers who have this inkling to commercialize a discovery? Where, where would they first start in terms of building a team and beginning conversations with the people you alluded to? Yeah, I think that the Two things maybe to start are, you know, understand the limits as well as the opportunities of the technology. And um, at the same time, you know, don't be so much of a self-critic, you know, that you sell yourself short on the opportunities. I think that the other major issue is, I remember back from my postdoctoral fellowship days, my academic mentor, John Stanley, advised me, only collaborate with people you like and trust. Um, and the same absolutely holds true for starting a company. But I think the additional layer on top of that is, is that in business, you know, trust really means aligning the interests of the parties involved because the business relationships go well beyond just a one-on-one um, interpersonal interaction. Mm-hmm. 
Amy, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Dr. Sangeeta Bhatia and you know Nancy Hopkins from MIT, who are huge names in the biotech world now, and they are also from an academic background. They did a study at MIT where they kind of ran the numbers and realized that if MIT's female faculty created companies at the same rate as their male colleagues, there would be significantly more biotechs that would have been created. This is just from MIT. So do you have any thoughts on that, especially maybe at the Penn community or just in general that you've seen? Are there any barriers that you see as a female researcher and professor who is trying to translate your discoveries into a company? Yeah, I'm familiar with that article. Doctors Batia and Hopkins in particular are such pioneers in this space to really raise awareness of this issue in the biotech field. So there's certainly, even in addition to that study, you know, a body of published literature on implicit and systemic gender bias pertaining to issues such as early stage biotech investment, you know, nomination to board positions. And I think there's a series of articles that have been published on this. And when I consider my path Personally, the opportunity to start Caballetta happened at the perfect time in both my career as well as my personal life. So I had just received tenure at Penn in 2015, which is a harrowing process for anyone, I feel. But um, <laughs> I think that, you know, honestly, if I had to launch Caballetta at the same time, I was managing the pressures of academic publications, grants, managing a new laboratory, that would have been extremely difficult. My laboratory was well established. I had already received tenure, sort of more comfortable in that space. And so paying attention to Caballetta and launching that was sort of like one of the next steps in, in my professional career rather than something that I was just trying to juggle with everything else. And at the same time, my daughter had just left home for college back in 2016, and my son was 16 and relatively independent. So I didn't have the same childcare responsibilities as I would have had when the kids were younger. And most importantly, you know, when I look back, what really made it possible was that Stephen was a phenomenal colleague and mentor who just demystified the startup process. And that's really key. You know, we know from my experience addressing the gender gap in academics and mentoring women physician scientists, the formula for doing that is sort of clear, you know, at this point. So you want to identify and address practices that perpetuate systemic gender bias at every step of the pipeline. Number two, you want to create a network of women and men at academic medical centers who champion. So this is the new champion. You don't just passively advise women in the career path. And you want to create forums where aspiring women physician scientists and entrepreneurs can be educated and encouraged in the process. So I think, you know, what we always say with MD-PhD training is that we want to guide them not only what they want, but also what they need to be successful. So that's basically, you know, essentially what you need to be able to do to advocate for yourself appropriately. So this is why Thea is great. I mean, it's it's really the forum that Thea is creating. So, you know, what we know from the physician scientist community is that even now, the number of women physician scientists that may run a wet bench research lab at any one institution is often too low and also, unfortunately, overtaxed to really meet the needs of the local community even. So nationwide forums such as Thea are really critical to build that sufficient support network and has become all the more accessible, you know, potentially as everyone has become more familiar with online formats and mentoring in recent months. That's incredible. You bring up a fantastic point about the need to to have that community to basically surround yourself with champions because that will help you take your work to the next level. I like how you say it's men and women, right? Especially yeah. like for being in medical school, depending on the specialties, you sort of navigate 
there's huge biases and the representation, you know, by department. So I think everyone needs to be involved and especially for advocating for for women in, in different specialties. Yeah, you know, most of my mentors throughout my career were men. And so there's nothing wrong with that inherently, right? I mean, obviously, we do want more women um, role models who can basically be out there. I mean, the interesting thing is, is that when I consider the entrepreneurial ecosystem at Penn, women are quite prominent. You know, so for example, Kathy High, who's president um, of Spark Therapeutics, was a CHOP faculty member, Howard Hughes investigator. She's been actually a, a mentor to me as well. Jean Bennett, who basically did all of the foundational science that led to Luxturna and, you know, now has started her own company, Limelight Bio. I mean, so this women are actually quite prominent in the entrepreneurial ecosystem at Penn. So I don't know if that's a fluke, <laughs> if there's something that Penn's just doing particularly right. You know, I, I I almost like to think that, you know, we have a woman president, we have an administration that's quite tuned to and supportive of diversity when it really matters. When what I usually say to people is that it's not like this perfect kumbaya type of, you know, world where everybody's perfectly supported all of the time. You know, so what I usually say to people is that in your life, you need people to give you moral support, financial support, and professional and scientific support. But the chance that one person will give you all of those things is almost zero. And in fact, the person that financially supports you will almost always emotionally berate you, right? So, um, yeah, so basically, the more that you're able to understand that and like understand that that person that's financially supporting you is not there to be your friend right now, <laughs> you know, they're, they're there to kind of push you harder and be hard on you. But then if you have your friend that you can just like go cry to or, you know, have a beer with or whatever breaks your stress from that moment, that's basically what you need to kind of make it through those tough moments. And so I do think that sometimes like when people get fed up and they quit, like that's it, I'm done. It can really be like that emotional of a moment, you know, you get like the, that rejection or that paper or that VC pitch or whatever. And then you're just, that's it, I'm out. But it's really about just sort of persisting through those tough times and having that community around you that supports you and say, you got this. It happens to all of us. Just get back in there and keep fighting. Dr. Payne, thank you so much for this great conversation. We learned a ton through sitting down and talking with you, and we appreciate your insights on many important topics. And I think we touched on quite a few, but just to mention a few, we talked about the origin of your company, Capoletta. We talked about clinical and regulatory development processes, and also academia and entrepreneurship, the relationship between the two and how to navigate as a woman and also as a researcher and professor who are, who are really the pioneers of these scientific discoveries. So to wrap up this conversation, the one final question we have for you is for the women who are aspiring to become the entrepreneurs who want to live the dream that you're living right now, what's your advice for them when they're trying to start their own life sciences company? Yeah, I mean, really, I guess you could simplify it down into a somewhat simple statement, which is just believe in yourself, believe in your science and go for it. Most women who are in academics of that phase have learned how to develop a story, think about it rigorously, and all of those skill sets carry over. I was interested in how many parallels there were between you know, understanding and developing and building an academic research program and also 
building a company that would try to do the same things. You know, we have slightly different terms for it. So in a grant, we have potential pitfalls and alternative approaches. In the business world, it's like and risk mitigation strategies, you know, but they're, they're the same sort of concepts. And so I think that the skill set is there and there's absolutely no reason why women can't be as successful as men in the field. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests.